Exodus for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics Marvelous Mutants week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and as always, you guys can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. One of the things I am so excited about with today's episode is we are going to be talking about a number of books that didn't exist in any form three years ago. The idea of Marauders, X-Core, and Children of the Atom are so new to what the X-Men are, with none of them having run more than 20 issues. It's a really exciting time to be an X-Men fan, so let's jump right into it. In this next clip, myself, Jonah, Arturo, and Blake take a look at the most recent issue of Marauders, which seems to be setting up Storm's departure, which we assume is for Sword. We hope you guys enjoy as much as we enjoyed making it. Hey everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. Now that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm your friendly neighborhood ex-nerd, Blake. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Blake's Buzz. And you can check out my indie comic blog at Blake'sBuzz.com. And I'm your reporter, Jonah. And you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike Lourdes, who is a mutant from an X-Men classic uh, backup issue who was never seen again. But we're not here to talk about F-less mutants that nobody knows about, except for maybe one or two people. We're here to talk about Marauders number 20, or as I like to call it, Storm and everybody just agreeing that they love Storm. Now, I've never realized this before but if her whole goal at the hellfire club was to become one of the inner circle it turns out that lords never got to be royals <laughs> and she will I'm, just, never be royal. I'm just so happy about this she was killed by a bot <laughs> I love that you tried. Can we throw in, so I mentioned in the green room that I read this B story last night to kind of see what, you know, Shaw was pouting about. Because I was like, why are you making me, like, feel bad for Shaw? Like, I hate this motherfucker. He killed Kate. Like, I don't, like, I, I, you know, why is he even here? Uh, And so I read this story. And of all the ways you think someone could die by a sentinel, right? You you get stepped on or they, they pick you up and they crush you or they, they shoot you with their sentinel blast or, or shoot you with like the electrified rope and wind you up in it and shock you to death, right? All these, this, this, these creative ways that, that you could die by sentinel. How does Lords die? The sentinel points, he finger gun shoots her with a harpoon out of his fucking finger and harp. Harpoons are with this like seven foot long, girthy, massive harpoon that you could like reel in a great white shark with and just shoots this petite, beautiful woman with it. I was like, art, like that, that shocked me, guys. Like that was now you know, you know, not girthy, ready. you know, girthy is a hell of a trigger word around here. Right? <laughs> I really was shocked by the language on that one. To explain what Blake is referring back to, Classic X-Men was a series that reprinted X-Men's biggest issues from their heyday before the era of trades. Trades weren't popularized yet, you know, as the economy has changed, things like recollecting comics has dynamically shifted. So there was a period of time where for a dollar you could get a 10-year-old issue of X-Men. Now, it would have updates, it would have content changes, they would correct things to reflect modern storytelling retcons, but also the first 44 or so included a backup story 
story, usually by Chris Claremont or Louise Simonson, frequently with art by the brilliant painter John Bolton. And this particular character first appeared in Classic X-Men number seven in a story by Chris Claremont and John Bolton to be funny enough, right? Now, the thing about this story is it is Lord's only appearance. This character has been one of the most popularized things from non-canon that I can think of. And I don't mean she's not in canon, but like X-Men Classic is not everybody's go-to fucking book. Now, I'm not, I'm. it's not that he's older, it's that he's a time traveler. But Arturo, you were collecting comics when Classic X-Men was coming out. How did those stories feel? Did they seem like they were going to be important? Like you would be reading this character 30 fucking no. years later? No, no, no. Straight up, this is this is uh, this was a total blind spot to me. I, like everybody else online, saw the, the sneak peek of an upcoming Marauders cover with that incredible artwork, and instantly I had to know anything and everything I could about Lorda Chantel, but she was a total mystery to me. Like, I think of that era of the Hellfire Club, and I'm thinking of Leland, I'm thinking of Donald Pierce, I'm thinking of Sebastian Ch Like the classic, you know, lineup, which I know changed a couple of times, but Lorda Chantel was a total blind spot, and I have already fallen in love with her just based on that cover. Like, I can't wait to see what, what this is all leading to. Now, keen-eared listeners might recognize that we discussed this story and Lorda's in the first ever episode of X's for Podcast way back in September of 2018. X's for Podcast number one featured Giant Size X-Men number one, X-Men 94 to 100, and Classic X-Men 1 through 8. Jonah, it's been over two and a half years since we talked about this story. And at the time, we can go back. The proof is there. You were obsessed with her. Yes, I was. If I'm my memory serves me correct, I believe it's classic X-Men number seven. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just want to make sure I remember the number. Um, yes, so that was one of the classic backup issues I was more positive on because I found it way more interesting to dive into the inner workings of the Hellfire Club. It was a really interesting issue to see the motivations of both Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost and how they're both conniving in trying to get what they want which is the ultimate control of the hellfire club lordis was a character that brought a little bit of a humanizing mutant mutinizing kind of side <laughs> to shaw where it kind of made him feel a little more dimensional in the sense that this was a character that he was more positive and he was very sweet to and clearly had romantic affections for and she just straight up died like there were no if ands or buts about it there wasn't a cliff hanger like she literally just got speared and that was it and not even in the fun kind of way but and wasn't she like more sympathetic to mutants because like one thing about sebastian shaw is like he never gave a fuck about the mutant cause if for him it was always about like his own power base and manipulating both sides of the equation or whatever just so that he could profit but wasn't she at least from what i've heard because again i'm not familiar with this character but she was more you know she had more 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 heart than that so let's hit what you're saying right on the head there's eight pages of her ever she's in one story she has appeared one time she has eight pages to her name she is alive on five of them this character doesn't fucking exist 
but she represents something that I have long maintained is the lifeblood of the X-Men. I call it Neville Longbottom syndrome. Neville Longbottom is a character that we project our idea of Neville Longbottom onto far more than he actually appears in the books. I'm constantly told that he's brave and that he's so strong because he stands up to his friends. Um, no. He thinks that by snitching, he's going to get a leg up on the kids he knows are doing the right thing. Neville Longbottom isn't actually some brave guy until they decide they need him to be in the last book. For the most part, he's kind of a whiny, petulant child. But he is a child, and he is meant to be whiny and petulant. But we project this idea of Neville Longbottom the hero onto him every time. And I bring that up because we do that with X characters to no end. We love characters that appear four times, ever. In, in 50 years, they've had four appearances. I'm still waiting for Mystique and Logan's child, Raze, to come back. And I don't think there was a good appearance of him. But I'm like, yeah, I want more. We're all so obsessed with Solemn, and he had like 10 lines ever. This is such an X-Fan thing to be like, yes, we all love her, and we do. So We love answer- her, and guess what? And I'm fan casting her right now. I want Rosalia to play Lorde Chantel in the MCU. Let's do it. it. Right. And like, that's the magic of this, right? So you're saying, you know, wasn't she more this or that? In four pages, they were able to create Chris Claremont in his infinite mutant nerddom was able to craft a character that so resounded with fans that this many years later, Jerry Dugan, the man poised to take over the X-Men main title, wants to spend multiple issues delving into this character and what they could represent to the bigger picture. This is such a fucking exciting time to be an X-Fan because the writers are really, like, straight up, they're just going off the leash and they're telling the stories that fans have inside of them. And that's what I think is so fascinating. So you know what, to answer your question, kind of, kind of, it was five pages, kind of. She was kind of more into the mutant cause, or maybe that was just her mood that day, because she only appeared in five pages. She is a blank slate that is coming in at a 100. That is such a unique concept to be. Well, and that's like the best thing that's happening with Krakoa right now, because like even even characters that got a little more page time than, than Lord is, uh, we're in a place right now where we can really start exploring that. Like Tempo springs to mind. Oh, seeing, my girl. Seeing Tempo do so well during the X-Men vote was just crazy to me, because like I remember that character from the 90s, but talk about somebody who just like fell off the map, and you, it, it, there's so much potential there. And I love that that the creators are doing that. Like everything that's going on in the sword books, I can't stop talking about that. Or in Hellions, like it's just such a good time to be a fan. Dude, editing sword is so hard sometimes because like I don't want to cut a single minute. When they talk about sword, I am like on the edge of my seat. I've already read the damn book, but hearing other people be that obsessed with these like minuscule characters, it really I just love that title so much. Blake, do you feel like you're at all at a disadvantage or is this blank slate giving you a chance to sort of experience this deeper well of X-Men? Is it enhancing the experience for you? Well, it's not a blank slate though. Like the more I the more I learn, the more I have to read, the more I'm compelled to read. I actually really like it. I wish I had more I wish I had more time, you know? Like uh this, you know, this whole relaunch of X-Men like has led me into into really weird Marvel corners that I'm digging, you know, I, I went back and read the, uh, uh, I, I'd read, you know, the, he who shall not be names, the astonishing X-Men run. Right. But like, 
<laughs> and I, I I love it. I, he's a douche, but I love that run. And um, but you know, so I I read that, and then um, you know, that sent me into you know the, the as we're seeing now, Ed, we get a little flashback with the letter Emma writes to Kate in this about the the giant space bullet, you know. Uh, and and so I, I read that, and then the and the bullet, and then I, that led me uh into Ed Brubaker's run, which leads into Matt Fraction's run, which is where Kate comes back. Um, and she's still Kitty. Uh, you know, that led me into like the color books where I know not everybody loves them, but like everybody can step the fuck off. Jeff Lemire is a genius and his extraordinary <laughs> X-Men was not nearly loved anywhere near enough. Yeah. I just don't fucking care what like anyone it. says. I haven't oh my God. It. It's one of the best X books from that era by far. Every I, time. I, I, how you I've really got, feel. <laughs> I've made I'm it real, the I'm, apocalypse wars. Like I'm a nut job over Jeff Lemire. I, yeah. I, I super stan him. Like I am uncomfortably emotionally connected to his very Canadian maple syrup, white boy hockey ice experience. <laughs> it really works for me. And I I think part of it is I just imagine he walks around cosplaying Sweet Tooth all day. <laughs> and like, I really project that onto him. I've been reading Sweet Tooth since the first issue and it was a really magical experience to watch that book play out. And I just, I really connected with him as a writer. So I don't think his Extraordinary X-Men gets anywhere near enough love. Uh, and I just want to say, so for the three of us that have read Astonishing, I want to make an interesting point about Astonishing that I never hear get made. Astonishing actually takes place, timeline-wise, over six days. They're just six days that are spread out. It's wow. three and three. But New X-Men takes place some issues over the course of months. And they are such a fascinating mirror to analyze each other through. This idea that New X-Men is about how life changes you over time after a single instant. But Astonishing X-Men is about how single instants change life forever, over and over, in rapid succession. A ton of stuff doesn't happen in every issue of New X-Men, but a ton of stuff happens in every issue of Astonishing. And I think that sort of, that dichotomy, that reflective nature is not just best expressed by looking at New X-Men and Astonishing X-Men, but consider Perfection herself as a reflection of Emma and the ways in which Perfection and Emma represent long-term planning versus short-term moves. And I think that's a really incredible mirror point to look at those books through. And one thing about Astonishing, too, is, is it it got me back into X-Men. So, like, as a kid, when I could buy the Claremont Jim Lee issues with the gatefold, um, or the the splat, you know, the, the pool party splash, like, I, you know, and then they had the cool gatefold cover, um, which I, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast. I saved up like all my allowance money and lawn mowing money and bought all those covers right and this was they say comics will break your heart like I fucking was so mad when I realized that like I bought all these covers and they all had the same issue inside of them I was like Marvel screwed me like I was so I didn't know anything about variants right I was just buying this shit at the grocery store in 7-Eleven and, and really liking this 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 run and all my friends were reading it and uh, so like that's how I found out about variant issues and now I'm obsessed with them and I buy like multiple variants for uh, especially X-Men variants you know I'm, I'm addicted to them uh, which is funny so anyways uh, but yeah uh, so I didn't read X-Men for a while I was really into Spider-Man and um, and Spawn for a bit like growing up and then I didn't read comics for a while but anyways um, Avengers came out right and everybody loved Avengers like it was the fucking Avengers at the movies and it was amazing and you know like I was like Joss Whedon I was like wow like he's really good and, and then I found out he wrote this X-Men comic book and everybody was like oh 
oh my god astonishing x-men is such a good book and so like i i read that and i was like wow this is a really good x-men comic and that actually got me like interested in x-men comics again well before you know Hawksbox. so uh we talked about a lot of great reasons why i think x fandom loves uh lordis and i also think it's a very queer thing to do seeing someone very minor or just seeing something random going i love her and have to support her do you know how exhausting it is to seeing a weirdly shaped lamppost and being like i love her and support her and need everything like i she should be the president that being said Lordis's death to me I think represents that Shaw's ultimate goals have to be played a lot smarter than he originally thought no matter how much Shaw hates mutants if anybody found out that he was a mutant he would be turned on instantly and I think it was a reminder to him that truthfully in what he wants to obtain whether you think it's for evil or whatever intentions he can't trust anybody I completely agree and one of the things about ability to trust people and not trust people that I loved so much about this issue was the beautiful transformation of Emma Frost. We're technically here to discuss Marauders number 20 by Jerry Dugan and Stefano Caselli. And this issue was a love song to just about everybody in it, but no more two people than Storm and Emma Frost. I mean, it was really Storm's issue, but Emma got some nice moments. <laughs> so I do want to start off with that beautiful letter that Blake started, uh, that Blake mentioned earlier, the letter between Emma and Kitty. So this is a room full of Emma stands. How did you guys feel about that dynamic transformation of Emma's personality to be so succinctly and beautifully put in a scene? Uh, it is it is a constant source of joy and surprise that Jerry Dugan writes Emma as well as he's able to write her. Because he gets Emma's voice in such a perfect way. Um, it, it's it's incredible. It's incredible that in just this like one little note, you get so much of her character and her personality and, and her relationship with Kitty. Uh, the, the little closer of, if you decide to give the brooch to an urchin, please don't tell me. Like, it's just perfect. This relationship has been one of the best things about this X-Men relaunch, uh, in my opinion. Marauders has, has been at the top of my X-Book list since it all started, uh, until like, you know, Hellions and X-Factor showed up to kind of, you know, wedge their way in. But I mean, the both both of those, you know, X-Factor isn't even 10 issues old yet. Hellions is, is just 11 now. And I, I mean, so Marauders, we're at 20. So, it, you know, it's it's one of the OGs, right? It's been around and it has always held me. Um, I've been super fascinated with it. Just the X-Men is pirate deal. But the whole, the kind of, um, the, the positive grooming, like not bad skeezy grooming, but just Emma, like taking Kate under her wing and and treating her like royalty and like and showing her like no like you you are important to this com- you're not just important to this community you're essential right and part of that was structurally made sense you know that made her death and return a, a, a huge deal um it, it, regardless of maybe it got stretched out a little bit too long but no comic book is perfect right we can always critique something but their relationship and getting to know both of them in a, in this different way that that Jerry is is like Arturo said is so profound at at putting on the page like that's been my I, I love jonathan hickman but i mean like his his stuff takes second seat to this like the emma and 
and Kate are just perfect. And and I love them together. I love the I love that they're gonna, you know, take over the or they're trying to take over the Hellfire Club, it seems, or already have kinda. Uh but I just I, I love every moment of it. And it, it I'm I'm glad it's still continuing in this way. And I hope when Jerry gets off this title, I hope that something I hope that essence still lives and breathes in this world. Like I don't want to lose that when he goes to X-Men. It feels like he has forged bonds between these characters that are so strong that they fundamentally have changed the characters going forward. Like, I don't think we'll ever have to see Emma and Kitty being catty and bitchy to each other, you know, like kind of like what we saw like in Astonishing or, or what have you. Um, Storm and Callisto used to be, you know, mortal enemies and you know, I think there's a whole lot of subtext for a lot of other kind of tension there between the two of them. But going forward, like that is that they're like best friends, you know, like there's there's this sense of family. And it's it's poetic that this whole thing is happening at a dinner table. It, it, they just it feels like a family i wish over the last 20 issues we could have got a lot more of a lot of some of these other characters like pyro and bishop i think have been kind of uh sidelined a bit but if it's been sidelined in the service of emma and kitty i'm sorry kate and storm like that's great you know i, I the best x-men are women we always say that it, it's a universal truth and jerry dugan has done an incredible job of like bringing that to life issue after issue so i make it no secret that i love emma frost she's clearly my number one girl she's my ride or die i would put her number one in my circle rankings every single week and something that i've been really appreciative of emma in hoxbox and now post dawn of x post swords i really am appreciative of how far emma has come in terms of her entire character growth and journey i am really appreciative of seeing this amazing woman get the treatment that i think she deserves she does in how she not only has learned to uplift and bring up other women and in understanding that her own power and her own sexuality can be used for a positive gain in making a change in the world and rather than having more selfish goals where I don't really think she would have been that happy to begin with. I am really appreciative of especially this Marauders run in seeing how much dedication she has to making sure that Kate is taken care of and that Kate has all of her needs met. It's sort of that natural transition of affection that I think is, like Arturo said, it's changed the X-Men forever. There is a real beauty to something that Dugan did very delicately this issue. I think this idea that Emma Frost is sort of like Kitty's new stepmom so Storm can do other things is maybe a little bit false because we know that Kitty is now Kate and Kate is a woman and she no longer needs a stepmom. Instead, you know, she clearly has like a a, a slightly older woman figure that helps her to achieve her, you know, ultimate self. Whatever. But like this idea that Storm can't be the person there for Kate right now because Storm has to leave the Marauder and sort of turns over the reins to Emma. And we need to be reminded how this fucking Emma and this fucking Storm can possibly have that sort of meeting of the minds. And he reminds us that Emma Frost used her gifts on Storm to switch their bodies. And she learned to not fucking do that again, didn't she? And that's kind of the magic of this book for me. It really does pull back to things like classic X-Men. It really does harken back to the stuff that we love. It shows me how these changes don't mean that the earlier stuff is invalid. One of the things I dislike immensely is when a writer decides to have a bold new era by erasing a previous era. 
And Dugan is showing us that you can effort, like seemingly effortlessly, I'm sure he's putting in a ton of work, you know, but like he shows us that you can seemingly effortlessly weave together new and old in a way that creates something better. And that something better can always, as far as I'm concerned, be a bunch of awesome mutants having a party telling Storm how great she is. I, I loved this. I loved every second of this. She never needed the knife. She didn't even need to be there. Hit after hit. This could have been like a storm bottle episode. Yeah. I, mean, I felt like this was like a like a Wolverine Black, White, and Blood for Storm. This yeah. was so many amazing stories about Storm, but she didn't even have to show her sometimes. Storm was so present that she didn't even need to appear in some of these. How did you guys feel about these encapsulations of who Storm is through other people's eyes? I loved it. It was so good. It was so emotional. Uh, and the, man, the art too was just like, I, I mean, this, the, the art. Caselli at his best. Yeah. It, he, yeah. he, he cranked it up to 11. Um, and I think the different, the different like locales and stories and scene changes, uh, and then ki- how we keep going back to the boat too. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. This is how like Wolverine or this is how any of the red, white and blood or black, white and blood issues. I think will want to be, um, this was just really strong storytelling and a really, Really cool celebration because you know we are about to get the teams are about to get shaken up right like uh we're gonna get new new creative teams and new x-men teams like the books are about to change and storms you know storms gonna leave the ocean and she's gonna leave the the, the pirate life behind and i really i dug this like this uh you know not they, they, they kind of they're not it's like they're ever gonna never gonna see each other again or anything but you know like they've had this really cool adventure um and they've all bonded uh, especially like I really like the the storm and Emma uh, element and callback to that famous slap too. Um, but yeah, man, it was it was so good. I didn't really know what I I, I had heard like you know murmuring on Twitter about kind of like what I was getting into. Uh, but I, I, excuse me, I, I try really hard and, and avoid a lot of, unfortunately avoid a lot of X talk on Twitter so that I don't get stuff spoiled. But I knew, I heard it was like a storm focused issue and I was like, okay. And I just it exceeded all expectations. Like, I am really amazed that they did this in like 23 pages. Like this is a lot to do in 23 pages. Some of the callbacks to classic scenes, like the slap heard around the world with Emma were just beautiful. You know, and, and calling back to Callisto, the one story that mattered for Callisto was not fighting to the death in the in the sewers for leadership of the Morlocks. It was not any of the other countless times that they've they've crossed swords. It was when Storm went with her to the Crucible and was there to greet her when she woke up to her new life on Krakoa. Like in one panel to convey that much story is a feat. And that's something that Dugan does with like great ease, it would seem. He's someone who loves to pack so much into every issue. You can see it going way back on his Deadpool, which was a huge era for Deadpool, getting tons of stories. He was at the peak of his success, uh, thanks to the films. So Dugan was writing, you know, that Deadpool. And we saw a humongous expanse of the line under his pen because he knows how to give you as much story as you're looking for. In fact, this issue even kind of made me go, holy shit, way too much has happened in Marauders in the last 20 issues. And it's still barely 
the tip of the pirate berg. I also can't believe that Storm is leaving this title, and I finally came up with Aurora Monroe, a pirate's life for me, and she's leaving. And I'm just so sad because it turns out Aurora Monroe fits with Yoho Yoho way too well. <laughs> well, and you I'm might just have to add space in front of the word pirate, and it might just work out. Listen, I need her to go to space because Akanti, you slay. I, I definitely need. We have been long term. We have been long fans of Storm and the Akanti on this show. And if Storm is going to space, she better make friends with some space whales. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I it, like. I'm. I like anybody else. I'm excited for more Storm stories coming forward. Like, I think she definitely deserves her own title. I think Storm. You know. For all intents and purposes, Storm should be the premier super heroine of, of the Marvel Universe. She should be like our, our Wonder Woman. Agreed. Uh, yes. Very agreed. You know, yes. she's she's just an incredible character and she's been there for a long time and she's like so I'm 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 happy. It's a bittersweet thing seeing her taking going off this book. I'm looking forward to her next adventures. But I'm also very terrified of her just like not being part of Krakoa for a while. Like space adventures are all well and good for few issues but i don't you know i need my queen here on earth we need our we need our bright lady our goddess i'm also a little i'm i'm very in your boat especially with all of the potentiality of sword and guardians playing together for a little while which by the way if you guys are looking to know more about guardians of the galaxy by al ewing we're going to be having an amazing feature running with rod and juan covering those issues going forward to make sure that anything that happens in sword happens here on x's for podcast so if you're someone who wants to know more about guardians but don't want to pay the 4.99 we got you covered but the fact that there is going to be i don't like when the x-men play with the guardians i'm sorry i don't because the trial of Jean... I'm still not over being mad at the trial of Jean Grey, so I don't want it. But I I trust <laughs> Al Ewing just, like, explicitly. Like, I, I trust him completely to tell a beautiful story that moves me. But I am nervous. This was kind of a beautiful send-off for Storm, and it's kind of what she deserves. I jokingly said this is everyone loving Storm, but it really is kind of 20 pages of how much everybody loves and respects Storm, and, you know, Storm has been... Uh, Love, loved, beloved, and respected X Men for years upon years upon years, and seeing this whole issue basically dedicated to how much people uh, within the X universe love her is, you know, amazing and great. I think it's a natural transition to have Storm leaving the Marauders because I think that Storm was really in the Marauders to make sure that Kate was okay, and now that they've kind of gotten their revenge on Sebastian Shaw and Kate's kind of doing her own thing, I don't really think storm needs to be watching her anymore and i think there are other parts of the world that just need her and i think that's okay to have a character transition out of a book especially done in this way where you see how much great they've already done within this title and you're like well let's spread that magic elsewhere where else where in the world could storm be needed and the answer is everywhere now i want to ask a question i think there's so much magic in numbers and i think there's a lot of magic in the way things lay right i see that there was a bunch of this title that didn't have Kate. I now see that there's a bunch of this title that won't have Storm. I wonder then is Marauders in that regard then Emma's book? Is Emma the thread? Because this idea that, you know, if Marauders might restart, I will be furious if there's just five issues without Storm. That will feel so weird that there's just an arc without her and then the book ends? How do you guys feel about this big shakeup coming to the X universe where we don't really know what book is going to get what creative team or for that matter, what X cast? I'm excited. Um, I just, 
I'm excited. I'm really excited for the gala. I'm uh, I'm excited for Jerry to take over X Men. The only thing I'm worried about, I I didn't worry about this title actually yet till you just mentioned it. But the, uh, we, as we discussed last week, some of us are worried about Cable and how what that creative shake or not just the creative shakeup, but just the kind of abrupt ending. And uh, that we don't know if it was a, a 12 issue maxi planned or it, it seems like it wasn't. It seems like they were like, well, we're going to change stuff. Uh, that's the only book I'm worried about. Just like I want it to end well. And, and I'm worried that they're they're rushing the end. Um, I would be bummed if this ended. I because I, I want Marauders to keep going. But it, I also would it would also be cool to get like a hell a Hellfire title with the new leaders of the Hellfire Club. Like that would be pretty rad to me. Like oh it, shit. It, like focus with like Emma and Kate and, and Bishop and this. I would I, love that. We still have slots we got to fill on on the on the whole court of Hellfire. And and I, because you said strife and then the cable thing and then oh my gosh wait does the trial of Magneto mean that Magneto is going to be taken in some regards off of the board, which is why Storm is coming in to take over his position in S.W.O.R.D.? And then does that mean if Magneto is going through this trial, if there's this idea of the unseating of Magneto, how many seats on this board are about to be open? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Now, I just got, like, shivers. I'm I'm that fucking nerd. I just got, like, I just got, like, shivers when you were talking. I was like, ooh, I'm excited. Like, yeah, no, I, I, like, I got, I was really shook by the, by the reveal of the trial of Magneto. Like, I, like, a lot of our listeners here had a list of potential people that I thought were going to be on trial and Magneto was not on that list. And on the one hand, I'm excited to see Magneto get more spotlight because I, you know, he has been kind of sidelined a bit in the Krakoa era. I've been happy to see him get a little more action and sword. Um, but I'm just terrified of losing Magneto or, you know, he, he's, He's literally one of my favorite characters of all time. So I'm happy to see Magneto happy, and I'm scared of what is coming down the pipe. I will say that I am very nervous what's going to happen when Charles no longer has full control of things. There are too many dangerous people sitting on the Quiet Council for Charles to not have a mandate to to wield. It is certainly disquieting. Oh, because <laughs> of the Quiet Council. <laughs> I want to talk about, I want to go back to the slap. I've been wanting to go back to the, to, so I, I opened Marauders 8 while we've been talking, right? And I went back to the, the, the Storm Emma slap and it's such a good scene, but it's totally different. It like, when you go back to Marauders 8, it's, you know, she's, she cause basically like Storm is like, every time you come into our lives, you ruin everything. And, and Emma's like, she's like, well, I get it, you know, but you can't blame me for Kate's death. Like where were the all powerful X-Men while she was getting murdered? And Storm slaps her across the face in the middle of that sense. And then we get this replay of this slap and it's like Storm doesn't slap her. Storm knocks the shit out of her. Blood comes out of her mouth. She knocks her on her ass. Like, that does not happen in Marauder's 8. Or am I really stupid? And is there another slap that I don't know? Well, about? I mean, don't forget that Emma Frost was a supervillain for a pretty significant period of time. And considering there was that two-parter where Emma stole Storm's body and used it mm-hmm. to destroy the X-Men, I'm pretty sure if we flip back into the pages of Dave Cockrum's shocking oh, that, return to the X-Men it, for okay, 151 okay. and 152 where storm still had the beautiful burn costume at the time i think we would definitely find that connection it might even be like what if this is like some sort of grant morrison super sigil mega slap and it's all of the slaps (laughs) ever combined (laughs) my slaps combined the blood comes out your nose 
Yeah. Yeah. With, with those outfits, I, it totally took me to that time. And that unfortunate little story where Emma takes over Storm's body. And it's very heavily implied that she hooks up with Sebastian Shaw in Storm's body, which is super problematic and probably better left untalked about and yeah. forgotten. Uh, but yeah, that's what it took me back to. That was definitely like a Hellfire versus X-Men era slap. Okay. I also had the unfortunate happenstance of having to record a little something about Firestar 1 through 4 today. And so I found myself saying, yes, I know Emma Frost kills a horse. I know she kills the fucking horse. Okay. And so, like, today is just a replay of every bad thing Emma Frost has ever done. (laughs) And there is so much to be said about how beautifully I feel Dugan was able to take pieces of the past and the present and weave them together in a sort of kind way. You couldn't quite figure out which Emma slap it was. And you know what? It didn't matter. It still sold the moment to you. And with Jonathan Hickman's X-Men era being so about progress, the idea that you've now seen something that we've seen a hundred times before, but we feel we've seen it with finality, is the strength that marks Dugan's writing. He's able to bring something that we'd seen before back up, but now when we look at it, we look at it as an element of the past. That sort of closure is exactly what Hoxpox's new beginning allows for. And that's one of the reasons I think this title really came back around for me. Probably my favorite issue in the last year of this. Also, I think it's a testament to Jerry's writing how um, what an, another part of, because like we talked about, you know, this issue focuses on Storm, but it's also very much about Emma. And yeah. I really, really liked how so the whole issue like emma is feigning uh seasickness right and it's because uh, if you look at it so she's like she's she keeps talking about how she's she's sick and like the boat's rocking and 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 really it's because she's i think she's like overcome she's still not used to emotion right like kate's death you know did some stuff to her uh and she's more comfortable feeling i think but she's still she's still the the white queen and she's still got a little a bit of ruthless in her she's still the one who would take jeff the land shark and turn him into a handbag right and she's that's still in her but she's starting to open up to people more and so she keeps talking about being sick being sick and then she's finally like i'm gonna go to bed and i love that line she's like tomorrow we change the world uh but she goes she walks away and she goes you know up to the the bridge the open part of the boat i'm not a fucking sailor i don't know what it's called um and uh she goes up the there open and, boat and, part. And, and of course that's what it's the called. open <laughs> the open boat part and uh you know she and as soon as she walks out there she's fine right and that makes even less sense because like when you look then you're out there looking at the waves and everything's rocking and it's it, you know that makes you sick too so she gets everybody out there always says that like, fresh sea air <laughs> and uh and and the that was one of the other best parts is is Lockheed just like just just captaining this boat i was like <laughs> fuck yes just i was not expecting that and and it, it's so perfectly drawn and that dragon is so into it it and you can see like the dedication on his face where he's like i'm gonna steer the fuck out of this boat and that's just <laughs> so on point to this art team right that they can that we can pull emotion out of lockheed a dragon and um 
bet your bitch ass I'm Captain Dragon. <laughs> exactly. Captain Dragon, man. But when she she walks up and like scratches him under the chin and it's like it, it's it, that to me, the way that was all structured and, you know, that was like an ongoing th- thing throughout the whole issue was that like how close she is now to Storm and this crew and how bothered she is that this crew is, I mean, most of them are staying together, but she's losing a friend kind of not. I mean, they're not, she's not losing the friendship, but she's not going to have that on the daily, right? She's not going to have Storm to rely on. She's not going to have Storm to, to both stand over her and correct her and also pick her up when she's at a low point. And that was like, so beautifully done. And I, yeah. I was just like, I was just like, wow, man. And that's so many people complain that like not enough happens in these X books and there's not enough action. And that threw me for a little bit of a loop too, because Hox Pox was really intense. And, and that's when we learn about the dying and the coming back. But the drama of it all is so good. Like, that's what I love about the X-Men is, is the characters. And I love the fights and I love the big splash pages. And I love it when they, you know, crack Sentinel's heads open and stuff. I do love that. But these character moments and big, huge character moments, like, I I really adore it. I, I, I mean, a lot of people got mad at Swords for the same reason. Like, Swords wasn't this action-packed, you know, Mortal Kombat-esque escapade. And it ended up being more of like a melodrama. And But it's these scenes, just like in Swords at the dinner party. You know, a lot happened at that dinner party. A lot happens at this dinner party. I want to be at these tables. I want to be at these tables. (laughs) Yeah, I meant to bring up that dinner party comparison. So thank you so much for bringing it up because it definitely felt like it kind of harkened back to that. Hey everybody, welcome back. Now in this next clip, Rod, Raven, Robbie, and Broadway come together to talk about X-Core number one. Now Broadway's new to our show, but he fits right in as the team dives into what makes X-Core number one so unique. It's a very different perspective on an X title, more of a corporate environment than a fighty fight punchy team. And it's a really challenging idea to the status quo of the X-Men. And we think you guys will enjoy. Check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next segment of X is for Podcast. I am Rod. Find me at Rod Kamada on Twitter and Instagram. And today we have with us the Radiant Raven. <laughs> You're always trying to find those R words. I love it. <laughs> Hello, I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. You can find me on uh, Twitter, Twitch, D-A-M-E-R-E-D-B-E-N-T-O. And today with us again as our usual lovely, soft, very quiet boy who just makes perfect sense. Hello, Robbie. How you doing? <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm doing good. And you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. And then with us, we have our special guest, Broadway. Hi, everyone. I'm Broadway. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BWAY3RD. That's B-W-A-Y-3-R-D. Perfect. Yes. Four of us today. We're talking about the first issue of X-Corp. It is written by Tini Howard. Artist is Alberto Fochi. Color artist is Sunny Go. And then it is, the letter is VCs Clayton Cowles. Alrighty, y'all. I want to do a little around the table style of, since this is the first issue, is how we all feel, what we would change, et cetera, et cetera. I want to start with Raven first, since, you know, this is a <laughs> more, half of the book is more of, of a woman and a woman of color. So that is definitely Raven. Well, I, I'm definitely glad that they got her color back where it should be. Because, yes. uh, yeah, that little, that little fiasco kind of worried me for a minute. Um, but 
I thought it was, hmm, how to phrase it? This was such a very different book than, um, like, the more action-packed, like, Hellions or Marauders, you know. You tend to get, like, just a ton of action going on. And this very much more felt the underbelly of corporate. It was kind of, it was kind of fun. I loved it. It had a lot of layers. And, uh, I, you know, I don't think there's too much I would change, honestly. It, honestly, for, for, for a first book, I'm very pleasantly pleased with it. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Robbie? All right. So uh, overall, I felt like some parts were a little more dense with like a lot of information, and which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think when we look at some of the other X books, we're not necessarily used to that as much. And though, while it might catch some people off guard, I do uh, imagine that teeny. Howard is probably using that as a way to like set a lot of things up for the long run and I also do really like the choice of uh, characters that were picked alongside Monet and Angel like I really like um, especially seeing uh, Trinary appear Mm because she hasn't really appeared in much since X-Men Red (laughs) exactly exactly I definitely agree with that and what about you Broadway we haven't this is the first time we're ever hearing any viewpoint from you so here we go. <laughs> yeah, I hope my takes are, are adequate. You no, know, I really like this book. I liked the kind of political and international business angle. The subtle things like Chini mentioning, you know, that X Corp has an IPO, right? And it's like, well, that's like, I appreciate it. It's like she did her research and also understood how like that would affect a business if it was like open to the public, especially a mutant business. You have like a bunch of humans like buy stock, right? It could be very like communist verendi like you could see them sort of like gobbling up this business and getting involved whatever so it's just those sort of things that i found really charming and intentional and i just liked i liked the way the un played into it as well Marauders, um, and I like that their enemies are beginning to use these sort of human institutions against them, um, and and sort of waging a PR war that's very different than what the mutants are, are used to. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, definitely. I like that we all have basically liked this issue because it was, I feel like, a uh, very hit or miss on the internet as a whole. Mm-hmm. I feel like, like y'all all said, it was very dense. And um, business, 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 you know, meetings, business. <laughs> and, and I, unless you, you know, like, you know, TV shows or books like that, then this is probably not going to be exactly for you. I mean, it does have the mutant aspect too, which everyone loves. And it has the, you know, floating spaceships and floating island and all that. That was really spectacular. Mm-hmm. But it is dense in business lingo. So if you're not like interested in that or want to do the research like Broadway did, then you probably be like on the other side of the spectrum but which i saw a lot on twitter when they're like wow this book was really dense it's not what i was expecting i don't know if i like this and i mean hey everyone's allowed their opinion i just thought it was fascinating that we all actually you know genuinely enjoyed this first issue (laughs) i i don't understand how people could not expect this book to be more dense than say you know new mutants or any of the other x house because it's x 
corp. That mm-hmm. means you're 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 taking a look at corporation. And um, if you know if history has told us anything about storytelling, they're going to take a lot of that storytelling from you know the actual human world. So stuff like the stock markets, uh, UN sanctions, being able to do international trade, all that kind of stuff. Like yeah, that's going to be a lot of information that most people don't necessarily uh, take a bite of. But the X writers have always shown that for the most part they do a lot of research um when they're putting their books together so yeah i i expected it to be um lingo heavy and and a bit more on the read about the sanctions and and the legalities of things versus the okay we're just gonna go ahead and punch things although you know <laughs> with our dear miss sequa in there things are going to be hit <laughs> oh definitely i mean she did hit a lot of walls and and in things out of anger she had a little bit controlling her anger issues i mean she has penance inside of her so i get it right you know like she's got to control that it's like having the hulk in you kind of but like a lot of really more pokey (laughs) 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 so i i mean i i appreciate this issue just because i mean we we knew we were going to get monet in it or monet i I don't how do y'all say it monet or monet Monet. i say monet Monet. i say Monet. monet okay I'm glad we have Monet in it. I wasn't expecting Trinary, and I'm glad we did get Trinary. And I know a lot of people were wanting more Trinary because she is a like a, a character we don't see often, you know, and we don't see a lot of you know Indian women, especially. Yeah, we're finally getting to see a more of a diaspora of the of the mutants, which is kind of nice because you know when you, when you get stuck with one uh, particular people always coming up again, hey, we're mutants. It's like mm, okay, but where where are the other mutants coming? from you can't have that you you shouldn't have that high of a concentration in one area if this is something that is you know a worldwide phenomenon especially with so many uh mutants early on living in um egypt and africa and that kind of stuff i would expect way more (laughs) mutants of color yeah exactly (laughs) but it was it was great to see her in this even just numerically right if like india and china both have you know populations in the billions that would probably be the overwhelming majority right or sort of like asian and african countries be like the leading like populations interesting thing about the sort of design of Iraqi mutants that have been like brought in um so i'm like that's one thing i'm excited to see more of is sort of like is it new uh new visuals for mutants? Mm-hmm. yeah oh definitely that definitely brings a good point like i why don't we see more you know indian or, or chinese or even like even russian mutants we see a little bit more russian but like those are bigger countries that have most of the world's population in them but most of the mutants are white so <laughs> like wh- why do we get most of, mostly that race like there's there's so many more people on the earth we should have more of that race of mutants mm-hmm. i mean if, if if nothing else i i kind of look at it as other countries or or other populations might be a little bit more cool with their mutants thinking of them more as um representation of ancestral spirits earth mm-hmm. spirits of uh you know witches or or um, you know minor gods who are who are there to be helpful and therefore when they see outside western influence you know coming their way they're like what mutants we don't know what you're talking about we just have these crazy earth spirits over here who love to take care of this little pool you know so they might not i'm guessing that some of these populations may not view mutants in the same way western uh mm. culture which is most represented in comic books views mutants as it were because western culture is about conquering 
and using the resources that they have now found or <laughs> stolen and and you know using them for what they need so other yeah other places might just go i don't know what they're talking about but now the great thing is we are seeing more mutants of color and we're seeing uh different parts of the world and it might be really interesting to see if x corp goes that way where you are seeing more parts of the world what's going on there and we get like more of a global view within the comic book that would be awesome to see honestly i'd be so happy yeah honestly i feel the same way i do want to ask since we have broadway you are a person of color as well um <laughs> so i want to ask you this question seeing that trinary was introduced in x-men red but she wasn't really fleshed out rather than just a support character in x-men red you know and now she's getting introduced in this series where i don't know if you read x-men red but were you excited to see her and like are you what are your thoughts on seeing her after like do you think she's gonna get fleshed out more or hoping that yeah so i haven't read x-men red okay so the hawks box of it all was my reintegration into x-men like years of not being involved and so the first two times i saw trinary are um so she's in excalibur number one Mm -hmm. and um, she is also in um, Hawksbox with Storm and all of them doing like uh, the info side of the the like mission to the Forge, the Orcus Forge. Um, okay, a character that I'm not super familiar with, but I'm like really excited. And one of the things I, I found really exciting was that like she seems fairly young, so it could have been very easy to put her in like an assistant kind of position, especially like her abilities kind of lend themselves to a more of a support role. But instead, she's like given a seat and a boat on the board and I thought that was a really it's subtle but it's the little things that make those books meaningful is like you're seeing people of color in leadership positions and somebody who's not from the United States she's gonna have a unique perspective on how they do business how they're like how X-Corp should interact with uh, developing or sort of mid-developed states right it's gonna be very different it's like ah I do business in America it's like doing business in India and sort of serving that population is gonna be very different so that I find really exciting yeah definitely have to agree with that it it's definitely a good aspect to the character i'm glad i was wondering when they were going to bring trinary back in because she's a really good character um she's one of our only indian mutants that are is active i i mean and she's a young character so she is at she is one of the head seats at the table and she can make decisions and i like that monet was like like yeah no you're at the table i'm i chose you like you're qualified for it doesn't matter that you know you had some quote-unquote criminal you know behavior before you were just trying to survive no you're good you can be a part of this i i, I, I love that has had criminal behavior you know right <laughs> Just say it. Say it. No, no, no. That 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 was actually a really great to point that out. That yeah, I mean, she had a criminal background, but I mean, like so so many mutants. Like, I tell me one mutant that doesn't have a criminal background at this point. Honestly, like whether whether they were put in a position where they had to commit hmm. a crime or they committed a crime and then reformed. I'm pretty sure a huge swath of mutantdom has a criminal background but we've been shown that that doesn't have to preclude them from being uh, a, a functional part of society and a functional mm-hmm. member of society that actually gives back to it um, a great example of this is mask 
Um, he right. used to like disfigure people and like, he, you know, he could completely melt your face and mess you up on so many levels. And now they're using him to reconstruct um, cleft palates and recover from burn wounds and help regular humans in Madripoor who don't have any other hospital or any other place to go, no other way to get treated. So now you've taken um, a person who was very criminal and made them very much a needed member of society so i love the fact that they don't let a little bit of criminality um just throw the entire mutant out no you must you must be a criminal and we can never use you anywhere else especially not in the public eye now they went yeah you have a criminal record so do i well we're starting over we're doing something better so you know do you want the job and that's what i really love about this new era of x-men because we're seeing so many characters getting these second chances mm-hmm. and and that's nice because even like a lot of readers who they might have made mistakes in their own past, it might really hit well with them to, you know, see a character who also might have goofed up a little bit. And, you know, they're out there being like a part of the community and like doing so many things to help other people and that they're not getting shamed or like um, feel, having to live with so much guilt mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah, I feel like that's even the, the nature of like Hellions, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, what do you do with these people who have like antisocial behavior but a lot of it is contextual right like if you don't get the opportunity if you've been used as a soldier then like that's gonna be what you're inclined to do if everyone sees you as much right like for like gray crow or even like wolverine um it's like maybe if you got another like maybe if you were presented with another path you could create something more productive i remember forearm is now on right and mm-hmm. the last time we saw him was like slumming in new mutants when they mm-hmm. uh wild side i think and it's like you know like homeboy got a job and we like love that mm-hmm. <laughs> he seems happier yeah not only is he on sword he's also on uh Ilya's team of the dark riders yes yeah yeah so yeah like again yeah went from criminality to having jobs and roles and you know things you got to do so i mean isn't that isn't that what society at large is about is getting people who once you know may they maybe they made a misstep circumstance whatever happened and reforming them and making them better i mean it's yeah. social commentary it's always right. been that social commentary of hey don't don't treat these people as different or criminal you know reintegrate talk out the differences find where that middle ground is and get everybody back to functional so, yeah i mean i could i feel like that could speak to the metaphor what that you know mutants are supposed to be the metaphor for like diversity groups and everything and that has gone back and forth on especially now like can it really be that because most mutants are white and, and this and that I feel like and I, I mean that is very valid and very true but mm-hmm. I feel like the way of what Kukoa is is that it's supposed to maybe it's maybe maybe I'm just looking too much into it but it's supposed to show like a society on how society is supposed to be you know mm-hmm. Kukoa is not perfect it definitely yeah. has flaws but it's better than like a lot of the societies that are going on right now so it takes right. it tries to take care of his people it tries to you know help them you know get jobs have a sense of purpose 
you know, they're, they're seeing their faults as well and trying to do better for them. You know, they're trying to have like a kind of a structured government with like the quiet council, but not hopefully not as corrupt. Like they're, they're trying to find ways to be better as they're going. You know, they're not saying that they're perfect and everything just needs to stay the same. They're like, we need to be flexible and keep going. And that's how society, society should be. So. (laughs) And and that's exact. And that's exactly what they're doing there when they see something that they're doing is like, okay, this really isn't quite working okay we need to refine or we need to adjust like um when a couple of council members were like well i'm gonna go do this thing and like the entire council's like i could you not or we really need you to stay here and do this thing right now and they're like nope we're gone they're like if you do this thing you have to leave because you're creating such a bad conflict of interest and whatnot and they're like we're doing the thing and they're like okay now you're off the council we will still you know keep you on for some certain advisement but you don't have that position of power anymore so yeah when things don't quite work as a society they are not afraid to adjust mm-hmm. you know the rules in order to make a better society which is kind of what we're all hoping for right exactly that's what society what society should be <laughs> but it, it was it was interesting that in this book that they were they were so willing to oh man teeny was really good at just like kind of gently weaving our regular world into this story um and i love when when it all comes back to rest on madrox's shoulders yeah. oh man I, I i love penance so much i love our ms monet but whoosh she got a bit of a, a quick temper and, and, a, and a short sight. <laughs> she she really does. And I did like how Teeny wrote this. I do. I feel like with any first issue, you do have a little bit of a, um, a pacing issue with any mm-hmm. comics, really. And I did feel like a little bit of a pacing issue with mm-hmm. this with this um, issue. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you just have to push things along, especially in a comic book. Sometimes it mm-hmm. just has to we just we get just gotta go we just gotta move forward and sometimes you don't can't you know just give details as much as you want to just because of the way stories are going or you only have you know five issues for this story by the way it's not an ongoing as it was told before i don't know if that was just a oh it's not uh-uh it's what? a five it's it's five issues this is the first time hearing of that it was <laughs> yeah yeah it was i mean unless they changed it again because at first it was shown as an ongoing and then they changed uh-huh. it to five issues and unless they change it again it's only still five issues now robbie okay. is a robbie's a researcher robbie you look that up I'm Googling it as we speak. <laughs> He's like, bitch, I'm already ahead of you. You know, I no. started typing when you said that. That. <laughs> that would actually explain some of the pacing mm-hmm. in here, because I'm just like, yeah, it seemed, a, it seemed a little, like, sometimes it was a little bit slower, but, like, you know, dense with information. Other times it felt like it was a little bit really more... Fast. Yeah, a little bit more quick, and like I like I missed a step or something. I'm like, did I miss mm-hmm. something? Oh, well, if it's only gonna be, oh, well, oh, I'll definitely well, be reading all five then. Yeah. So okay, given that. I did see a tweet <laughs> like it came up through Google. Funny enough, where I guess there was confusion about it being a mini, but I guess it's still an ongoing. Oh, okay. I think. Okay. Maybe it was uh, like a rumor. Huh. Yeah. Well, we shall see. <laughs> I was going to ask, would y'all want it to be an ongoing or five issues? But I think we're all in agreement. 
that we want it to be an ongoing. Yeah, um, like an ongoing means you don't have to to uh, put out things quite so quick, and that that you have a little bit more time to chew over the storyline. Sometimes uh, with five issues, you know, you have to be a little bit more uh, brief, uh, a little bit more you know gut punch to get through the storyline. And I mean, you only have so many pages to do that in. So I understand that, but. God damn. I think it's a really interesting and unique premise that's so different than the other books. Yes. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like space. I mean, I think about like in what was X-Force number four or five, the Mercs attack like a company that Xavier is like invested in, right? And they like kill all these like innocent researchers and whatnot. But I'm interested to see like what other, like obviously they could sell like the Krakoan drugs, but like, what other like business ventures could X-Corp have under its, under its wing? Like maybe it's like energy and things like that. Maybe there's also interesting spaces they can go into that I feel like have been like slightly engaged in Marauders. So since this is probably is an ongoing, I hope we're most likely going to get at least probably two more council members. Cause they did hint at, they want a five person system, right? So we have Monet, we have Angel, we have, oh no, I guess one, because we have Trinary, we have multiple man. So we probably get one more person on the X-Corp team or the the board. Who would y'all want? The question is like, what role do they fill, right? Maybe their like specialty is politics, right? Maybe it's their UN liaison or something like that. But I don't know. It's actually a very good question. I'm trying to think of like, who do we not see a lot of that would fill out really well? Because I feel like there's a lot of sort of easy go-tos. It's like, ah, you're just like, throw Emma Frost in there, but it's like, she's everywhere. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I can understand that. Raven, do you have someone you would want on there, specifically? For whatever reason, my brain automatically jumped to Callisto. Mm. I think having Callisto on there would give you um, a lot of ins with um, the poor, uh, with people who are like, have to kind of run slightly underground, as it were, uh, when it comes to their businesses. I think she's also just, she has a certain level of diplomacy to her, but she also is rather cutthroat. So I don't think she'll get... um, bullied or or run over when it comes to businesses of the board, let alone when it comes to business on the ground. And I think she could honestly be that person who's the business on the ground, you know, talking back channels and and doing all that kind of cool, slightly illegal shit that I really want to see her do. Nice, nice. What about you, Robbie? Uh, I definitely am not too sure, because I agree it definitely depends on what the position is for. But you know, to be honest, since Raven did suggest Callisto, that that is a decent choice. But I'm also not sure if there's still plans for her and Marauders necessarily. But it, I really do hope that it's a character that we really have not seen. And that way, Teeny could get the chance to really flesh the character out. And one thing, too, that I really like to kind of, sorry, to, set, to segue a little bit. But one thing I really do like is how <laughs> Teeny is like starting this with like a smaller cast compared to Excalibur. Because I do think that it would be a lot harder for. For Teeny to unintentionally put a character to the side, given like the story. Whereas if it's like mainly these four, they could get it fleshed out. And then once that fifth member comes in, then um, things could just, you know, feel like characters are getting, you know, each of their spotlight. But I really did like that, that it started with like four members. 
Yeah, I like that as well. I think it's I think it's it's for t- I think it, it works in Teeny's benefit. It, I feel like it's it, I feel like it's always in any writer's benefit, honestly, because it gives them more freedom to do things in the story when there's less characters there. I know a lot of writers don't even like writing teen books because they're like, it's too many characters. I don't want to do all those voices. So I definitely understand that. I actually was gonna say Callisto, <laughs> but I was trying to think of somebody else while y'all were talking and I was like looking through X-Men cards on my desk like who do I, who has not been in shit <laughs> and I can't think of anybody that would probably be better but she's already in Marauders but it's not like she can't leave she's not like she's never really been official I think she was just on there basically because of Storm <laughs> so like she could go um, and I remember in one of the podcast episodes I believe it was Nico me and sorry to anybody else listening to this that's on the X podcast I can't remember who else was with but we were trying to say who do we want on the UN like in the early stages of Hickman's run and we were like oh you know Callisto could be good for that because she's very like you know she's a hard ass but she gets like the point of like you know a, a poor perspective of people and you know she she can't really be bought in a sense mm-hmm. you know she has like her her way that she wants to think she can't just be like a bot politician yeah. <laughs> so you know yeah, it is much harder to to sway her, and you're not you're not just gonna buy her. She actually has a lot of honor and dignity, so bribery does not tend to work with her. Exactly. Just thinking, like literally, just in this conversation, I think somebody who might be interesting is maybe like, and this is such a bold take, but Mystique. Mm. Oh, she yeah. like, has a really great espionage game, and Ooh. the ability to sort of like mimic, you know, if they're like uh, trying to deal with corporate overlord you know she could pretend to be their like assistant right and get like all mm-hmm. the files and things like that but i also think it was cool because she's already on the council and i feel like most of the books usually have somebody from the council attached to it oh yeah except at the moment excalibur because apocalypse is gone but i feel like most of the books have like somebody from the council who's like attached to them and i feel that like it's true much relatively small. I could absolutely see Mystique doing that. Yeah, I would really love that. I mean, shit, I like Mystique in anything. You right. could throw her in some <laughs> random ass book and I would really eat that shit up. But that also mm-hmm. is a really good choice because it would be nice to see her, you know, uh, getting back into that espionage type of stuff that she used to do quite a bit. See, I would... I, I feel like she came across my mind for a second, but I only didn't pick her because of the whole burn Krakoa down destiny thing subplot right. that is still like in the background that hasn't been touched on in, in a while. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to get touched on. They just don't want to burn Krakoa down yet. So I get it. But, right. <laughs> um, but she, I mean, she would be a perfect choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, she would, she'd be able to do all the dirty work that they want her to like, that the X Corp wants to do. They can't really be seen to do. And she doesn't mind doing it either she actually right. likes doing it yeah. so. <laughs> she could be without getting sentenced to the pit because i feel like normally yeah or like i feel like might break the laws but if it's like in service of x corp it's like a little less murdery a little more like take pictures of, of emails and stuff mm-hmm. um so i feel like she could get her her kicks without you know getting dumped in the pit with saber tooth oh yeah they let some stuff go I know they they let some stuff go. Apparently, they're not going to let Magneto killing somebody at the Hellfire Goblet go because there's a whole trial about it. But <laughs> well, I guess we'll see what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> true enough. True enough. I think it rode the fine line between action 
<laughs> and corporate side, funny mm-hmm. enough. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how this develops. But again, like I said, it's the first book, and I'm already rather impressed that they were able to pull off the first book this well. I think going forward, a little bit, it, it should be even smoother. And and I'm, I'm here for it. I'm honestly here for it. I want to see where they go with this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. What about you, Broadway and Robbie? I, I really like the book. And also something that I feel like sort of slipped by me is I just really like the cover art. It's yeah. very like God, yes. I like the way that they like styled it. It's like it's even like the the number of pages as like tablets, right? Like mm-hmm. like there's a particular sort of branding around that that is very unique mm-hmm. to the other books. And I just like thought that was so hip. Like I could I could see this as like a trade paperback like sitting on a coffee table. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Oh definitely. Like oh beautifully, beautifully layered yet very, very stylized art is yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Bobby, what are your final thoughts? Uh, so overall, I did enjoy it. Um, so there were issues with like pacing, and it was a really, 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 really dense issue. But you know, for those who are listening who haven't read it yet, um, you know, you could probably just have like a little drink while while reading it, whether it's you know wine or water or like a smoothie, and it's something that, you know to take your time because it's not necessarily like a fast read like other X books. And but um I do think that it has a lot of potential going forward. And what are we gonna say, Rod? I'm just laughing at you saying like just get a drink of water and some wine and you'll really enjoy this book. I just <laughs> I want you to let if we if we're on X Corp issue two, I want you to say what kind of wine you drank to read it. Next the pairings time. of Right. I want you to I want you to tell us what wine you drank while reading it, because we need to know. The the listeners need to know, Robbie. <laughs> this issue, this issue I got is you a nineteen seventy-six Chateau Noir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will say I did read this on the porch at the beach on like a very like sunny afternoon. So I do agree, Robbie. No wine, just water. But it is definitely a book I found myself sort of luxuriating with. Um, so I endorse that. See, you understand. You had the whole scenery around you to relax. Yeah, exactly. You got it. <laughs> Brought out the cheese and the yeah. sausage selections. Yeah, it's definitely not hands. something that you could fit in like a little like lunch break. You know, it's probably something later after work. Yeah, it takes a second. You know, you want to understand everything. You got to reread it a little bit. <laughs> I definitely agree. I mean, I like drinking reading anyway, without no matter what the book is. I, just <laughs> I like, would have never guessed. I just like a drink, but <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, I feel like this book is one of the books that you will really enjoy and trade. Like it's it's not not like it's not enjoyable now. I really I did enjoy it, but I feel like you'll really once you get like the first five issues in a trade, it'll really read smoothly because it's like you continuously going throughout the story. You get it all in one sitting, depending on how you read it. So I think that's really that's how some books just are. That's just how they just they just fit that format because sometimes you just need the continuous story all in, at one moment to really get it. I mean, some TV shows are like that too. Some benefit from the weekly thing and some don't at all. <laughs> so and I think writing style also at least that's what I get from like Excalibur. It's like mm-hmm. you know, sort of longer form, um, big sort of arcs instead of like single issue. And things like that. Yeah, I would say I would definitely say that's 
that's Teeny's thing. Her her writing style is you need to read it in trade form to really get it because she has a story in her head and you need to read the story in full to really appreciate it, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. And Josh, Jonah, Kyle, and Drew have been taking a look at Children of the Atom, as we all have. And the main thing we walk away from it each time with is, man, we love these characters. And we really hope that Marvel is investing in them on the long term so that these characters can have the payoff they so richly deserve. While the art has changed and has included some incredible artists, Vita Ayala's pen has remained consistent throughout, and that's the heart of this book, and it's what we love about it. And if you guys love us, we hope you guys will take the time to subscribe to us over on Twitter, YouTube, and Patreon. Don't forget, you can drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts when you subscribe to download the show. We hope you guys enjoy listening as much as we love making this show for you two to three times a week, every week, covering all of the mutant appearances at Marvel that we can fit inside our show. We want to thank all of the amazing creators who have stepped out and have come on the show and have helped support what we're trying to do. We love having you, and we love bringing on guests like Broadway this episode. Enjoy this last clip, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Welcome back to another episode of X is for Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Children of the Atom, issue three, written by Vita Ayala with art by Paco Medina, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Five kids, five issues. And this week, we get a POV on Carmen, which makes our love triangle completely fucked up as Vertex C connects back to Vertex A, and these poor kids desperately need a polycule house on the moon (laughs) with me today to talk about this issue is kyle kyle say hi and tell us where we can find you hey everyone this is kyle and you can find me on twitch uh, twitter and instagram at drantis82 also today we have jonah hello everyone it is me jonah you can follow me over on twitter and instagram at peak jonah that's p-e-a-k and we also have with us drew hey guys i'm drew you can find me online on twitter and instagram at Christopher 3 that's at d-r-e-w-s-i-p-h-e-r-3 we also have josh and I'm Josh Wheel. As always, you can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W E I L, on Twitter and Asleep at the Wheel.com. And for the next two years, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four, U.S. Senate, and online at joshwheel.org. Children of the Atom 3. We're going to start by talking about the strengths. Um, there's definitely a lot of things to like about this series. And I think the thing that most people are pulling out of it to like and, and to love are these characters. Vita's doing a phenomenal job of going one by one, issue by issue, and taking us deep inside these beautiful, messed up, diverse, unique children and making sure that they all have agency and feelings and something for us to love about them. This week, we get Carmen um, and the unique characterization, what we're seeing here and what we didn't know about her um, is, in my mind, the strong point of this issue. Um, Jonah, how do you feel about what we learned about Carmen here and this whole new Carmen buddy, Kevin. Kevin Cole. Right? No, Great. Cole is the other one. Cole's the What's one that got Gene Splice. Oh, oh we Kevin. should probably know his name. <laughs> know his you name. mean Gabe? Gabe! 
Cube. Cube. We're gonna back this up for just a yes. Second. <laughs> it's issue three. It's issue three. Wait, it's Buddy, this... Carmen, Gabe, JJ, JJ and who's Marvel Benny. guy? Benny is. We haven't gotten guy. POVs on them, so we don't get yeah. their names very fucking often. We don't even know all five names. This is the first issue where I actually <sighs> remembered all five names. <gasps> Gold oh. star for Kyle. <laughs> Which is funny because JJ is nowhere to be seen in this issue or on the cover no we don't even uh, okay we're gonna get to the 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 things to be more critical about in a little bit um but first yes we have this new complexity to this love triangle between carmen buddy and gabe jonah your thoughts on our character development for carmen and what's going on in this very unique love triangle unique to comics love triangle not unique to the world just unique to (laughs) to comics um something that i really love that vita's doing with this issue is the amount of representation that i think everybody is getting we have this really great colorful cast of characters that are super queer super positive and super their own and to quote something that josh said a little bit earlier in the green room is that they have their own agency i really think that these are very distinct new characters that we were being introduced to and this new added layer of carmen being in love with buddy i find is a really good turn for her and it really helps drive the kind of person that we see carmen is all throughout this issue we see that carmen just wants to be special and she wants to be special to someone and i'm pretty sure that someone she wants to be special to is buddy and it's a really i want to commend vita for being able to get this young voice of being in this group and maybe not being out to your friends and trying to navigate these tricky feelings where you've fallen for one of your closest friends and not understanding or not knowing exactly how to go about that and what it does to you and the action that you do take and i really i want to commend vita for that and i have to I have to agree with that, actually, um, especially with the depiction of Carmen and her putting on a face for her stream where she's this super chipper, super popular person. But when you when she turns off her stream, she's isolated and she she feels like nobody really knows the the real her. And that that really does give a good representation of somebody who may still be in the closet. Yeah, and I think it's a it's an accurate representation too of what we're seeing from a lot of young people in this internet culture kind of world with, you know, where Instagram popularity is and TikTok popularity is more important than real life popularity. Um and so, you know, putting yourself in because it's not easy. Like we all know we're all on a podcast. We know that, you know, it's a lot more than just, you know, the 20 minutes. If it's a 20 minute video, it's, you know, a four hour to eight hour process. It's not 20 minutes. Um, And so, you know, all that time and dedication to put in, you know, to be able to kind of show to people to get tangible feedback in terms of, you know, follower counts and user comments and likes on the video, you know, that that's something that a lot of young people are dealing with. And we see it affecting Carmen's self-esteem. Um, and, and really the type of person that Carmen is, you know, looking 
looking for more, more validation, real validation. I, I also really like the dynamics here. You know, we've comics has given us a lot of young queer characters over the last decade or so. Um, probably no stronger, better, or, or longer lasting than um, Hugh and Gillen and Jamie McKelvey Young events. Um, but you know, we're getting even more so here. We're getting some really interesting clips on the the dynamics and the kind of internal struggle with those dynamics, right? We have a a non-binary AFAB character that is dealing with being in love with the most masculine character in the book that is also the boyfriend of their best friend. We have a um, uh, feminine uh, hetero-presenting Afro-Latina character in a hetero-presenting relationship who's in love with their masculine-presenting non-binary AFAB best friend. Like, we have these really interesting kind of, you know, not, and again, like I said earlier, not new or unique to the world, but new or unique to representation and especially representation in big two comics where, you know, I think a lot of young people and, and just a lot of queer people in general struggle with, well, like if I say I'm gay, does that mean that I need to like the most masculine men or am I allowed to like feminine men? Or if I'm saying that I'm non-binary, then should I like the perceived gender? Like there's of, of how things look, there's a whole mental gymnastics head game that fucks so many of us up. And, and I love that Vita's not just giving like the straightforward A to B on who these characters would be expected to be attracted to. And that inside their heads, you know, we're seeing the inner turmoil that every teenager goes through, queer or not, <laughs> magnified through, you know, all of these new complications. I mean, for me, these are the strongest parts of these first three issues and, and the thing that I do love the most about what V has done here. Drusifer? Yeah, so I would say that this is probably the strongest of the three issues so far, um, just because I think that the characterization in this issue is a little bit stronger than the other two. And I agree with what everyone else was saying about the um, representation. And it's great, you know, representation has given us more complex characters. And, you know, I've mentioned this, especially in our talk about New Mutants, how you know, there's there's some groups that have not been represented enough. And, you know, so as, as a Muslim, you know, I'm looking for, we need more just regular Muslims before we can start expanding into the depth of, you know, like all different types of Muslims. Um, it's one of the arguments I, I, I have against, you know, where, yes, I happen to be a bisexual Muslim, but we can't just be making every Muslim character non-Muslim in a way that makes them okay, because then we're saying that they're only okay if they have something that makes them less than a normal Muslim. But And what is know, a we, normal Muslim? Because, like, you know what I mean? Like, there, it's not like you know, like if we're using. I don't. Example. You're you're absolutely right. Normal yeah. is a bad word. Normal is um, normal doesn't exist. Um, what I mean is a a Muslim character that is not um, majorly defined by something that is in high contrast to um, like to their faith stuff. or to yes to being Muslim. You know. Um, but you know, we we have gotten. You know, we are at a place with queer representation where we can start seeing and providing all of this 
his depth. And it's fantastic because, you know, we were joking in the green room about Fantastic Four number one. And, you know, where, like you said, you know, white guy who likes sports, Johnny Storm, 17 year old white high school student, teenager slash NASA pilot. Like we've come a long way since then. Um, But like the funny thing is, is like how many characters like Iceman in the 60s was very similar to to Mm -hmm. that. You know what I mean? Like they're like Iceman and in the 60s was very similar to Human Torch. Uh, You know, there's like a lot of characters that are very like Cyclops and Captain America, you know, are very like similar. Um, And it's just like now we're adding these new uh, characters with new traits, new personalities, new like that we really haven't seen before. Not just new, but real, though, I think was what I was kind of getting at, because like there's no one out there who can relate to being a high school student and a NASA pilot. Like there's no one out there who's like they nailed me in this representation of Johnny Storm in 1961. Like, but now the types of, but, but that was, no one questioned it. Now, you know, people want to be like, what's with all this forced diversity? But, but what we're seeing is actual nuanced human complexity, the kind that really exists in society and people can benefit from seeing on the page. Oh, people, people are showing their ass and telling you who they are when they talk about forced diversity, because what they're saying is that they have tried to avoid diversity. They have moved to a place where no one is different than them and they hate that you're trying to push the real world the the diverse you know panorama of human beings on them when they want to just stay in their little box where no one is different yeah they live in a bubble and they're afraid that somebody's going to burst it by introducing something that isn't like them and it's fantastic. I mean, this is and, and it goes in a long tradition of, you know, young X character books. I mean, you know, we start with New Mutants, the first X-Men spinoff book, you know, which featured a Native American character, a Vietnamese character, not many years after the end of the Vietnam War, because we're forgetting the first New, New Mutant started in like 1981, I want to say, um, you know, we're going we're not too far from that. Um, you know, you do you have an, an Afro-Brazilian character, you have um you know, and then as it as it continues to grow and expand, you know, we well, there's a lot of white characters after that, but but you do have <laughs> you, yeah. you you do have you know some some good characters that you've not seen before in superhero comics, really. And then you know we get to Generation X, the next iteration, and you know we have Angelo Espinosa, we have Monet Saint Quan, we have. Um, we have Sync and Jubilee and, um, you know, we, we, again, are, are filling it out. It's not just a group of white kids with like, you know, one token non-white. And, and it continues to grow with each generation with, you know, the kids in Morrison's New X-Men, with the kids in the Academy X era. You know, we, we continue to see them, you know, coming from all different backgrounds and having, you know, a diversity of, you know, gender and sexuality and ethnicities and religions. Um, so, you know, this is in the grand tradition of ex-youth books. Um, and, and adding to it, like I would say each one has, you know, each one kind of stepping up and you know going a little bit farther than the previous did absolutely and i think maybe the point of the i'm coming to realize this everybody's you know talking about this 
I think potentially, and my my theory right now is maybe this book is meant to skew a little bit younger than us for that form of representation. You know, you have Cole who has two dads and they're in a very domestic, very casual setting where nobody ma- is making any deal out of it. He just has two dads. And I wonder if this is meant to be more for a younger audience in the sense that they're meant to be able to see themselves in characters. I think there are a lot of characters here that a lot of people who are younger can attach themselves to and see themselves in and see parts of them because I know that there are plenty of younger kids who have two dads or two moms or maybe a single parent or whatever and being able to see themselves in a comic in a series and a title that they may love or that their parents may love is really something special so I imagine that a lot of this beautiful representation is you know with that in mind and maybe that's why a lot of the more things that we're taking a little bit more critical and are taking a little bit more of a backseat to make sure we get that representation. Not really much of an excuse, but an explanation for maybe why some parts of the book aren't as well-liked as we would like. Yeah, we're we're, going to get to that in a minute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So characterization, um, representation, right? These are definitely the strong points of the book. Um, I do want to touch, before we start getting into things like plot, and story and timelines. Um, the art, just a little bit. The first two issues were done by Bernard Chang. Um, and this third issue has Paco Medina stepping in with, um, you know, it, it was a month apart. So I'd be interesting to see, you know, kind of like going back or in trade, reading them through. But I felt like the art was very similar, not something that would be off-putting when you're reading it in trade. Medina was a little rounder and cartoonier in some areas um, than Chang is. Uh, but overall, uh, I felt that the art was very dynamic. It definitely benefited by um, Curiel's colors. Curiel did a great job um, of helping with, especially in the flashback scenes, um, using color to help make those panels really dynamic. Um, And, you know, I I thought this was a solid issue artistically where, you know, it it helped to convey some of the emotions we were seeing uh, and without ever being distracting or feeling like, you know, for characters we've just met and have only seen drawn one way, oh, now we're seeing them you know, oftentimes a new artist on a book with new characters can can be a real like head spinner, like because there's not a lot of reference to go off of. But uh, Medina did a, a pretty solid job here of just moving this forward. Well, I shouldn't. Say- <laughs> Medina did a really solid job here of um, blending in with what, of picking up what what I actually liked it a lot. I liked it a lot, Um, especially Buddy. I I don't know. I with the first two issues, I I thought that there were little tiny things about the character models that were felt a little off to me but this one it everything with with this the slight changes in the artists they feel the same but at the same time they feel more uh it, it feels like they've been uh i don't want to be mean about this not mean to chang but i mean yeah i, I do like think, i do think i like this one advanced. better advanced <laughs> Yeah, I, I do think that I, I, I enjoyed the art on this one. There there was, yeah, there's nothing negative to say about what Chang's was, but there was something that felt, I don't know if it was... You know what I think it's... You know different what I think linear. it is? 
is it's also a different color artist as well. Yeah, the, the colors true. were a lot um, more faded than were, usual, I feel yeah, like, in the, the first, first two issues. It, do, it, it does. And yeah, I think I said in the flashback, it definitely helped make it feel more dynamic. Like I was trying to figure out how to word it when I was doing my notes for this. And I, I didn't want to say that like it was Medina because as I like really looked at some of those panels, he's not necessarily conveying motion in what he's drawing. You know, there's some very still silent interactions, particularly between Buddy and Carmen. But the colors around it are really making the whole rest of the background kind of explode and move and, and kind of take you along with them, um, which was a great job by Curiel. And maybe it's just the combination. Medina and Curiel together, I, I really like, I, I, I did like on this book and I, I enjoyed it. Not to say it's better, but I, I think I enjoyed it more than the art on first two. I also think it, the art and the coloration is a lot more in line with the other current X titles. I think the previous two issues were very distinct and that they were really different and kind of stood out in that way. But here it feels very similar to the art of like uh, the uh, X-Men or Sword or uh, Cable, stuff like that, where it feels a little more familiar to if you're reading the other titles with along with us. Yeah. And this goes to the whole line wide, like to speak about just the how awesome and how deep the art crew is just line wide in X-Men. But what Marte Gracia did on Hawks Pox, right, forced every colorist that comes into the X office to step up and hit a new level and... <laughs> Like, is there any other line of comics anywhere where weekly we're talking about the colorists and the impact that they have on this? Like, Marte Gracia is single-handedly responsible for that, even though he's not on the majority of these books we're getting week to week now. Well, I have to say, I mean, it, it really pushed things to the next level. And I think we as readers really benefited from that. All right. So now, now let's get into... Um, some of the the issues with these issues um so if this series is five issues if this if children of the atom is five issues long i truly do not understand how we can be 60 percent of the way through a story how we could have this is the turn this is the peak we're supposed to be you know from the last few pages of this on running downhill and i have no fucking idea what is going on in this story the, the characterization and unique voices are a strength but but this was the most confusing issue for me yet in terms of the timeline. We had two different stories when they were occurring. Um, also, man, I had to go double back and check. The second time we jump into the B story with the flashback, it does have a little box that says like, then like to tell you we're going back the first time we go into that it does not there is no indication that we are in past tense preview before times the first time we go into that that flashback scene and because i was flipping back and forth trying to figure out like what and when the hell was going on um what what type of story and i don't want to be hard on vita here because i know that children of the atom has gone through a lot of shifts that are outside of vita's control this was originally supposed to be released 14 months before we got it this was supposed to come out pre-x of swords this was supposed to come out um pre kamala's law and the grounding of all the champions this was uh, supposed to come out you know in a, a different time and it has had to be adjusted and 
and kind of reformat it to fit now, I get this. But man, just general storyline, like you're plotting out five issues for this. I can't imagine that this was what was originally intended, that like the original grand design of this was three issues in. We have no idea what these kids are or what this story is. I mean, if if I was not the type of major X-Men fan who sat down every week to do an X-Men podcast talking about all the books that came out and like making sure I read absolutely everything, I don't know that I'd be following this through to the end at this point. I gotta be honest. What What's in it? What What is this story? I have, okay, I have two major issues with this story. So as far as we can tell, you know, they are not mutants yet. So why do we, why do, why do we care as an X-Men story? Why, you know what I mean? If they're not, if they're mutants or not, like if, they, if they're not mutants, then this is like, why am I reading this in the X-Men line? You know what I mean? And they need to either be mutants or like go away. My second issue is this isn't really relating anything back to Krakoa. It's not expanding the Krakoan um, lore, really. They can't get through the gates and that's it. But we've seen that problem before. So how is this adding to that lore? But let's, let's add though, and be specific. And I think you guys mentioned this on previous episodes. The the gate thing is different than what we've seen before. Kate walked into a gate and it was like walking into a wall and she broke her nose. These kids walk through, come out the other side and they're in the same place. They didn't get Krakoa. Is this supposed to be a different like? So there's the let's assume that that's intentional. Um, Does that mean like, but again, I have no, I, I don't even know at this point. So what I've been thinking is that all of their powers are actually tied to their outfits, not to their bodies. And that would lead, that would, that's kind of backed up by them walking through the gate instead of passing through it, um, which has been stated as what's happened, what happens when a unaccompanied human tries to go through it gate so as of as of this point um well with the exception of whatever happens at the very end of the book um i i don't think that they are all mutants i think that they are fanatics and that's that um go ahead but if they're like essentially like you men i like isn't like i don't know i feel like that's kind of problematic for the era we're in and like not like like socially problematic you know it's kind of like which i don't think vita would do yeah because because if they're just fanatics, like that's great and all, but then does this, for all we've talked about diversity and representation, does this just become a book about mutant cultural appropriation? I would, but I know, and that's what I mean. And I don't think Vita would would go that route, and that doesn't even make any like. It's just that like, and that's kind of like my issue. I'm like, either this feels like it's cultural appropriation, or I don't know why I'm reading it because it's not related to any of the other content that I'm reading. My my only quip with the argument that their powers are tied to their suit, and it's not that it's not a bad theory, but then I would have to imagine they would know that they're not mutants. There, there's no, there's no logical reasoning for them to want to walk through the gates then because they would have to know that they're not mutants then if they're acting like mutants and they love mutant culture and they really want to be mutants like that cult group that is scarring mutant babies with the X's. It feels weird that they're shocked that they can't get through the gate unless they're just really young and naive and don't realize it. That, that's my like only like you know devil's advocate about it. When it comes to this issue, and as Josh has said, we're 60% way through. We're on our third issue. 
if I think of, you know, things in terms of like classic literature of intro, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, we're supposed to be at our climax where the big issue is supposed to be revealed. But I'm hard pressed to see what that's supposed to be. Is it that there's this group of people who are splicing humans with mutant DNA, like what was going on in um, X-Force with Domino, with those like weird people who were like using her skin to be like part mutant-ish? Is it something different? It was a weird place to introduce what is, I'm assuming, meant to be the villain. I feel like that entire dinner scene should have happened in issue two, and something else should have filled issue three with helping us get to that moment. I feel like there was a lot of like little nuggets of what are meant to be plot lines and plot hooks, but I don't know how everything is going to be able to be cleanly resolved in two issues without it becoming hand-wavy. So let's also look at this here. Right. And and this goes more to the, the writing plot spec. If we change this around, like if I took a Sharpie and crossed out where it said issue three on the cover of my issue and wrote a two and crossed out where it said issue two on the cover of that one and wrote a three. I mean, there's nothing to ch- like it could be read that way. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's there was nothing. And this is why I wanted to stop myself earlier when you know, when I mentioned about Paco Medina carrying the story forward, like because nothing carried the story forward in this issue, there was no forward progression of narrative here. This could have very easily been the second issue of the series, Um, just in terms of the, the order that we're revealing and seeing them. Half of it was a flashback, presumably. I mean, it was very as a Fantastic Four fan, it was very cool that, you know, they were laying down some very, very strong Cosmic Rays vibes. Um, you know, I was waiting for all five of them to put their fists together and make a pledge to, you know, to, to be superheroes. And I shall call myself Cyclops Lass. Um, but... <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, buddy, Bart. I hate that name. I hate it so much. It's my least favorite name. I'm, I can't. I... I... But like, my I feel love, like it's, I, my kids I love like, Daycrawler. Daycrawler is a sweet name. I feel like it's if, supposed. They're supposed to be kind of like cringy because they are kids. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it's an it homage. Is, yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. And these are these are kids, and <laughs> they think it's cool. I mean, hell, uh, JJ goes goes from Daycrawler to Nighty Nightcrawler to all these different things. I'm like, okay, but like that seems adorable. Cyclops last just. It's like word vomit coming out of my mouth trying to say it. Um, another thing I have, I have a positive too is I thought the first t- two issues were very similar in like plot points, like uh, like overall narrative. They were pretty similar, so it's like introduction of character, you know, like meet the bad guys, the bad guys loses, the end. But this one kind of had like a little bit of a different kind of story arc to it. Like it did have those flashback sequence, you know. It was like plot wise, it was a little bit different than the first two, which were very similar. I also. Also weird for you know a book like this no fights no powers no costumes in either the a or b story yeah that was really weird i wasn't i i during my second read of through this i was like wait why are they even on this spaceship and they're not in costume it doesn't make it's it's a very weird situation for all of them to be in at this how the fuck did they get on a spaceship yes <laughs> why <laughs> If Johnny Storm in 1961 can be a pilot at 17 for NASA, I'm pretty sure in this day and age we could have five of them be pilots for NASA. Yeah, he's, he's drawn that way for sure. 
But no, I, I would love to. I, I really hope that over the next two issues, we get some resolution on like what these characters are. And man, like if they're just human fan kids, it brings up so many like, yes, that's great. But should they have gotten their own five issue series? Like, should this not have just been a story that another leading character went through of interacting with them? Like, should because this is going to be the five issue cultural appropriation miniseries series we're gonna have no reason for them to be part of the x world moving forward and what what was this ride we were on like i i really do hope that we get some sort of better resolution and definition to who and what these kids are and how this ties into a larger ongoing narrative in our reign of x world so should we talk about carmen and what actually happens to her at the end Um oh <laughs> yeah, so there is there is a big reveal here. Um but what I I don't Very again like Claire. But the there there's some Rain Sinclair there. Um but also like what the reveal is. This was a lot like the end of issue one where I'm like, okay, okay, so did you just drop something on us? Cause I have no idea what like is Carmen a mutant? Does Carmen, like, have food poisoning? Um, is, like, what's going on with, uh, what's going on with our girl here? Has she become a space vampire? <laughs> How messed up would that be if only one of them turned out to be mutants? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's like, because they also do mention that, like, when you're about to become a mutant, you get, like, really sick, and then you just get healed really quickly. Uh, but I also think it's just weird that they're, like, well, at least um, uh, Buddy for the most, like, the most, but I don't know if they all are obsessed with being becoming mutants, and then they become mutants, all of them. The other thing, so, too, is Carmen, Gabe, and Buddy are clearly um, post-pubescent. And so, I mean, the this would be some, some wonky late onset X gene activation um, based on everything we've seen. I, I cannot say for sure what exactly is happening to Carmen. Do I find it interesting? Yes. I think maybe it even, maybe in my mind, a cooler way to maybe do this is like have the transformation thing happen at the beginning, but then don't tell us what's going on and have Carmen try to hide it from her friends of like something happened to me and I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't want to talk to anybody about it. That's just, you know, food for thought of ways to... Uh, help the plot in a more cohesive way because i still there's a maybe maybe too much too much too much flashback um too much solo narration not enough of actual what's going on here yeah and so like what's going on with carmen i have no idea it also too like if it was supposed to be subtle like it was just enough where it kind of reminded me of those years when larry stroman forgot what humans look like and it was like is this just like did paco medina have like a bad or is it supposed to be because it's not clear, like, if you're going to, okay, there's no, if there's no words, and you're going to tell the story with pictures, the picture should be clear enough, so I know what it's telling me, I feel like, I want to say. And I, I, it's it's not a good thing if four of us who read a fuck ton of comics all have to get together, like, do you know what it says? Like, I didn't understand what it meant either. Like, what is, like, that can't be good. Like, if we don't get it, average reader and new reader sure as shit don't get it wait i have i just something I, I was reading through the pages again and i just i just noticed something 
when they're talking to Cole about potentially being a mutant or part mutant, Buddy points out saying, um, word on the word on the forum is you can w- only walk through the gates if you have a mutant accompanying you. But why would she say it like that if she, uh, if they or their entire group has already walked through them? Is this entire issue in the past? <laughs> Uh, maybe? Like, it's, again, I have no idea. I, this is the beginning. I have no idea what the timelines are for this story. And that, that might be... I, I, I don't know if that's what it's supposed to be, but it's just a very weird sentence to say for someone who's already tried going through the gates. And it, it feels like a weird way to bring it up. It is uh, a weird thing. What if... What if... What if they're inhumans that want to be X-Men? That's what I was thinking, too. That That is a very strong possibility because there have been plenty of people who i mean like kamala khan i think is one of the most famous examples of being an inhuman that wasn't born on the blue side of the moon but My i thought own... they i thought their their powers were, were tied to their costumes i that's that's, that's the working theory yeah, that makes yeah. the most sense we don't but know like, for sure i thought i thought it was because she's buying like with that one data page that's in here she bought that old magneto helmet magneto helmet. and she's like incorp- incorporating those into the costumes right i mean it could be carmen's also been explicitly compared to forge uh i think like two or three times so then again like forge i mean you know forge has no obvious mutant like forge's mutant powers is that like he's good at building shit uh it also could be more of a testament to her doing cosplays her wanting very realistic things even though uh she makes a point to say that like it was a very interesting um white page to include about talking about costumes and making it your own that doesn't have to be authentic that's not what you want to do you don't you can strive for exact replica you don't have to and i thought that was a very it's a very interesting and very specific white page to include yeah the the white pages were kind of interesting they were i like that they were carmen focused because they added to our depth of that character but what they were trying to allude to or heighten or provide depth of about again i have no i like i don't know what this book is trying to do was when when the first issue came out and we were still under the impression that they were mutants and that they were just didn't want to go to Krakoa yet i thought the idea of living uh, of viewing the world through a post Krakoa yeah through a post Krakoa lens of what it's like living amongst humans i think i think that idea is interesting but adding this narrative that they might not be mutants one of them might be it might be a Fantastic Four situation where they got their powers from falling from space. I, I don't know. I, I do agree that it, it is. It's going to be a hard justification to try to figure out why am I? Why should I be reading this book if they're not mutants? Because I think if we're reading an X Men book, it should have a mutant or any X Men adjacent character. But we have five new characters, so. Did did you guys notice that as Carmen was starting to her her transformation, Cole started sweating, and that was when he started getting more Defensive. agitated. Yeah, and like the amount of sweat that showed up on his face kept getting worse and worse. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at it now, and now I notice. I'm wondering if maybe that he's tied to her somehow because he seemed rather focused on her being there. Um, JJ is nowhere to be seen in this like at all except in the flashback and he is the one character that's getting the least amount of any form of characterization the least amount of panel time like the least of everything and that's fine but it begs the question why even include him if 
we're not really going to be seeing him like at all. So that's that's we, the other weird pacing thing is that we got all three of our characters in the love triangle. Unless this love triangle is going to go like '90s young heroes in love, where it's like a super deluxe, but like you know polygon thing where everyone's in love with someone else. Like unless it's going to keep expanding, um, like the resolution for that and what we're doing, like if we were going to have these three in a love triangle, I feel like they should be spaced out issues one, three, five, not dropped on us issues one, two, three, because that's been such a heavy focus. And then now we're never going to get back inside their heads again in the next two issues. So we do know what the plot of number uh, Children of the Atom number five is, and it's supposed to be a huge fight sequence of some aliens who are hunting the X-Men. And the Children of the Atom are supposed to help fight against these aliens. Okay. Uh, I have no idea what that means in terms of, are we going to get someone's perspective about it? It seems like a very big issue, a very, a very big um, plot to try to focus only on one person. Not only that, but um, so after the, like after this arc is done or whatever, who's gonna take the main vision? Because you know what I mean, like the the focus, like narration wise, because it is going through every single different person's point of view. So are we gonna keep that kind of narrative view? And like keep switch like every single book is going to be through one of the characters' views, or is it going to get like a third person kind of like? I like the idea of this, but it's something that I don't always like in execution. Like for example, I watched the movie I watched D. Reese's Mudbound recently, which is a movie that does this, which has multiple narrators and is constantly going into the heads and giving you internal narration from a variety of characters. And like, okay, I like I like what you you're trying to do by making sure we're in the heads of everyone and not just one character but it is not the best for storytelling like it's it's difficult it's it's shifting you in and out of things like i i I didn't yeah like it definitely has benefits and potential i just um i feel like i haven't seen it executed or or i i wind up not appreciating it in the way i've seen it executed yet i'm I'm still waiting for someone to nail it it's kind of weird though because it's everyone was thinking that these kids were going to be like the first generation of crimea and it's just like very much not (laughs) i'm still i'm still hoping for hoping for uh resputin to come back Same. I mean, what if what if these kids did, you know, what if these kids came out of a, a sinister tank, you know, 16 years ago? Oh, like we've just <laughs> we've had nothing to actually lay that down. It would be a wild twist for Vita at this point, giving us no references to Sinister or anything. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I feel like Sinister is a one character you could explain a lot, which is saying, oh, yeah, he just took some DNA from all five of them a long time ago <laughs> and he put him in a vat somewhere and he forgot about it. And they popped out. <laughs> They're all Madrix's illegitimate half dupe children. He can well, absorb I, them. He can absorb now, them if he's not careful. When you call them half dupe, now I'm I'm envisioning actual dupe. Yes, dupe was the mother. It was Madrix and Dupe had a, a love connection, and these are the offspring. <laughs> <sighs> oh, mother dupe. <laughs>